0: Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host Cindy Wagman and I'm joined by my co-host Anya McGlynn. Hello everybody. Today we're going to talk about leadership and when we think of leaders for me a role model that comes up is a very personal one and I really had a t- time to reflect on this over the holidays this year. Uh, my grandfather uh, passed away. He was 97. Wow. Yeah. Um, but when we were all together um, remembering his life, one of the things that really stood out in listening to all the stories of all the people who knew and loved him was that everyone felt important to him. hmm Everyone felt like he knew who they were. He cared about what they were doing. He was always curious and asked meaningful questions. And he was really present in every conversation that he had with people.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. So like not for this to become like a memoriam (laughs) (laughs) episode, but when my mom passed away, I had the opportunity to, um, to sit in a room of her peers and colleagues, um, Each one of them, to a person, said that um, she made them feel as though they were the only person in the room when she was talking to them. For that reason, you know, they really looked up to her, and she developed all of these, um, you know, counseling and and mental health support programs in local schools, right? Because people were like, oh, we've never done this before, but, like, this woman seems to be making (laughs) sense, right? Um, So that, yeah, I think that, that quality of focused attention, um, and making people feel heard and listened to and, um, and unique is a key quality of a good leader.
0: Oh, yeah. And I mean, talk about legacy. Like when we do leave this world eventually, what do you want to be known for? Mm -hmm. And to me, I mean, this episode got deep quickly, (laughs) but, uh, you know, when I look at what imprint I want to leave on the world, uh, that definitely gave me some time to consider that that's really important. And it's about uplifting the people around you. And, you know, if we do anything, if we have, and there's that quote, you know, people will forget what you said. I can't remember. I'm not going to do it any justice right now. (laughs) But the one thing they'll forget what you said, they forget what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. I mean, I think that there's such an important way that we show up as leaders, uh, whether or not you hold a title that shows leadership.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that's exactly what our conversation with Numan Ashraf is today. It's about how we are all leaders, how we can all own those qualities and show up for our work and show up for the people around us in a way that is empowering and uplifting and meaningful.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some of the best leaders that I've encountered have kind of led from behind and led from um, humility. Um, I think once you are imbued with uh, a position of power, um, it's your job to check that, right? Mm. Because everybody, everybody around you knows that you are uh, the top dog, um, they read your title. They know that you hired them, et cetera, et cetera. There's no reason to, to flaunt that or feel like you have to reinforce that. In fact, mm-hmm. your job is to try and kind of neutralize that, um, yeah. because it can create this, um, this incredible barrier between you and the people that you're trying to quote unquote lead.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I
0: feel like we should just go right into the, the conversation because this is a good one. Numan Ashraf is an assistant professor teaching stream within the organizational behavior area at the Rotman School of Management. As of July 1st, 2019, he is also the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion, reporting directly to the dean. He possesses a broad range of professional academic and teaching interests, with a specialized focus on enabling inclusive and innovative practices within teams, organizations, and boards. For the last decade and a half, he has held progressively senior roles at the University of Toronto. He's a recognized thought leader in governance and has taught thousands of directors in the National Rotman Program on Not for Profit Governance, which is led in partnership with the Institute for Corporate Directors. He's also the academic director of Canada's Outstanding Principals Executive Leadership Program and the Supervisory Officers Leadership Program. Please join me in welcoming Newman to the podcast. Newman, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Cindy. Pleasure to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have this conversation. Now, you and I know each other because we were colleagues at the Rotman School of Business uh, or Management. And I know you do a lot of work with the charitable sector. So do you want to start by introducing our audience to you and what you do?
2: Well, I, I have been very privileged to have been at the Rotman School now. For over a decade. And I have been teaching in a specific executive program, and this was called the Not for Profit Governance Essentials Program. I have been teaching in that program since its inception 15 years ago.
0: Wow. Uh,
2: we've been teaching that in partnership with the Institute for Corporate Directors nationally. Like we go from Victoria, BC to St. John's, Newfoundland every year pretty much and we have some stops where we have like four or five offerings like Toronto
0: mm-hmm.
2: and Excellent. what this is what this has done is is it's really deepened my love my interest but also my learning mm-hmm. in the space of you know what what do small medium sometimes larger but mostly small and medium not for profits struggle with and how to innovate despite their Resource uh, allocation challenges and so on and so forth. Now, a couple of things I want to say just right off the bat because you are talking to an academic. <laughs> I don't like the term which is so often used, particularly in the American literature, which is nonprofit. Mm. I think what we're talking about are not for profits, right? Because there's lots of for profits that are nonprofits. We're not talking about those if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh,
2: the other thing that I think is really important to note, that I think it's really why I think your podcast is important to the audience is that there's in fact not one not-for-profit sector in Canada. There's two. Yes. Because we have these large, well-funded, historically advantaged not-for-profits
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they are kind of run often uh, on a franchise model, if you will, a national office somewhere and they have regional offices and so on and so forth. And we've got lots of brand capital, they've got lots of support and lots of traditional funders and so on and so forth. Yes. And then you have, a ton of, in my view, equally valuable, perhaps even more innovative, smaller not-for-profits that don't have the same resources, but they have different challenges. Yes. We're talking about the latter.
0: Yes. And I think hopefully all of our listeners are sitting there nodding their heads being like, that's me, (laughs) because that is um, so often... Underserved in our sector, or mm-hmm. the the second of this of that sector, and so uh, yes, that's exactly the audience that we want to support and and help move and, forward.
2: And so so there's two things. One, you've already said, and let me allow allow me to just mm-hmm. underline what you've said beautifully, which is you're not alone. And think about that identity not as weakness but uniqueness. Yes. Right. Because because of the fact that you may be smaller, you, you may, in fact, be closer to the end users of your product services and aspirations.
0: I love that. I mean, that's why we work exclusively with small organizations, because they are so close to the front lines of the work and sometimes much more innovative because they're more nimble or they're newer, like there's so many reasons why uh, a lot of great things are happening in this particular segment of the sector.
2: And the second insight that I have and piece of advice is I'm going to quote someone, Mm -hmm. make no small plans, unquote. Mm. And that's David Burnham. David Burnham was a city planner, had a lot to do with the, the planning of the city of London. And I actually think that the scale and scope of our of our ambition had nothing to do with our size,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but it has everything to do with how we see our impact. And that impact word is really important to me in my work, not just in this space, but in all the spaces that I work in, which is that, you know, leaders should always, always, always insist on impact.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things that you and I have talked about is, and and that you've mentioned some of the challenges of organizations uh, that we're talking about and talking to is that sometimes due to lack of resources, it mm-hmm. can be hard to, to, to refocus on that impact, or it can be hard to really look at how do we lead in this mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you found working with organizations that are some of the challenges uh, that you help them overcome?
2: The first challenge that I think uh, is absolutely pivotal is the challenge of mindset. Mm -hmm. Do you as a leader in this sector, a leader within your organization, a leader within your community, do you see yourself as a shaper or do you see yourself as a taker? So I think if you see yourself as a taker, what you do is you do your best. And I think doing your best is not bad, but it's not the same thing as being at our best. Mm. When we are at our best, essentially we're playing with nothing else left in our tank. Like we're just like we're giving it our all. And, and I think that that's a different way of thinking about the world because it's saying I'm a shaper of the context in which I find myself. So I'll give you a very trivial example of that, and that is my definition of leadership. So my definition of leadership is not positional, it's not linked to title, but it's one that says anyone who has decision rights is a leader. So the person who did your catering for your meetings, they're a leader because they have a choice, right? They can just put the salad in there and leave it there, or they can be artistic with the way in which they present the salad. Mm -hmm. They can have little little labels that talk about ingredients, and they can put doilies on the trays. They can actually have both white and brown sugar, or they can just do the bare minimum. And all of those things, right, actually incrementally cost-wise, don't cost you a lot. What they cost you actually is your attention. And I think that when people – Say that you know what; these are all volunteers. They're coming in for a three-hour meeting on a Thursday evening. I really want to make this catering order a bit of a treat for them, mm-hmm. as opposed to let me just get this done. Who really cares? I don't even know these people. I only have one contact, and the rest of them what I never see again. And you put together something that's very sloppy. I have a ton of other orders. That's saying I'm doing my best.
0: Yeah. But yeah. being at
2: our best is saying actually, this may be the only time I can get to serve them.
0: It reminds me of something that I teach with my students, um, Mm -hmm. which is around locus of control, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, we, there are sort of two people, there's the people who believe that the locus of control is external to us. So that doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what we do, we're going to be lucky or unlucky, and we just do our best, right? Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. there's the people who believe in an internal locus of control, which is I have control over my future. I have control over my outcomes. My actions will influence how things happen and move forward. And so they show up differently and they show up knowing that they can own their outcomes. And I think that's relevant to people because sometimes it feels like, especially in our sector, um, That we just, we don't have money. We don't have time. We have all these limitations and it can feel crushing. And to remind ourselves that we have to show up differently. We have to show up as leaders, uh, which is not, you know, is, is different than just being a leader or being in a leadership position. For sure. Yeah.
2: And, And I think that the shaping thing also requires this focus on iteration, hmm. Right. That I want to make my next board meeting, my next interaction slightly better than the last one. And it's not the same as trying to be a pleaser. No, it's actually saying, how do I design for the outcome that I'm seeking? Mm
1: hmm.
0: Whenever I think of iteration, I also think of like failing up or just learning by doing,
1: right? Mm -hmm. By putting
0: ourselves out there, even if it's Mm -hmm. not perfect, it's something and that process of doing is a process of learning. But I find there's a huge um, discomfort with risk. Yeah, everywhere, but, it's, but particular, particularly in our sector. And I find that people are so focused on getting it right that they yeah. get frozen with inaction. So how do we overcome that?
2: So I think you're talking about another mindset challenge, and that's you know, the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. When we actually take on a growth mindset around any endeavor in which learning is involved, and I, and I, and I would argue learning
1: Everyone. is possible
2: in yeah. every single situation, correct? Right. I think we have to first have the courage to step out of our comfort zones. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Like to me, that's that's a default setting.
0: Yeah,
2: that our comfort zone is not where learning is going to happen. For me, I'm going to say learning only happens when we leave our comfort zone. So, what do we have to put out there first? What we have to put out there first is our intentionality. Mm -hmm. Right, that we're actually being intentional about being a different kind of not-for-profit. We're not looking to be just another one. We're looking to be specific around how we look at an issue, define an issue, solve for a problem of consequence. And partners welcome. Like you've got to put that sign out. Because I think that when you come into this with the mindset of saying, you know what, I'm going to actually invite partners in and engage in conversation. A lot of times people think that's just a pitch line for fundraising. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give them some counterintuitive advice. I'm actually going to say to people, that if you're an executive director or a manager or an external facing individual within a small not-for-profit and you are not meeting new people weekly, you're not doing your job. And I want to say to you, meet with new people weekly, deliberately without mentioning the term funding, money, or resources in that conversation.
0: I mean, a good fundraiser would do that as part of good fundraising, right? Like that is, I love that you tied it to fundraising because, the best kind of fundraising is around community building and mm-hmm. getting people um, committed to the work before you ever talk about the dollars, right? So,
2: Yeah, because I think, I think you have to put purpose before process. That's yeah. the key to impact. The key to impact is to put purpose before process. And, and I think that, that that though has within it, within it an asterisk. The asterisk mm-hmm. is this, that your purpose has to be clear to you, right? You can't talk purpose and deal process. You know, the old Simon Sinek line, you know, start beginning with the why. I want to wow. go deeper than that. I want to say to you that for me and for you and for everyone else, you got to know, this is going to sound convoluted, but stay with me. <laughs> we must know why our why is our why.
0: How do we know or how do we develop our why?
2: So I think you have to ask a question which says, you know, how did, what did the world lose out on if I don't show up as... The most, you know, refined uh, iteration of my own self. It's simple as that,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Because I think that all of us know when we're giving it our all, and all of us know when we're actually cutting corners. Yeah. And I think that the real reward for excellence is not acknowledging by others. It's knowing in our in our own heart that we have been excellent. So if we just look for external validation, we become, you know, praise junkies. And that's not really helpful because all we're looking to do is just go for another hit of dopamine. Yeah. Right, trying to just put the flash instead of substance sometimes. Go back to the same places where we get the accolades and not really addressing the issues where we have to grow, where we have to refine, we have to where we have to iterate.
0: So how do we then learn to be our best?
2: So the first thing I'm going to say is, absolutely insist on impact. I've said that before. Mm-hmm. And next, impact def- has to be defined on the basis of the ones that we're looking to influence, not on our own basis. So impact impact to me is an outcome measure, not an input measure. So I, I, I can say to you as a professor that, you know, I'm doing my best. I'm teaching eight courses. <laughs> and I'm doing multiple sections and I'm across programs, undergraduate and graduate and executive education and so on and so forth. And all I'm giving you now is input measures. Yeah, But when I say to you that I have 100% you know, participation uh, rate when it comes to my course evaluations and people come back to me, so that was really helpful. And three years later, I hear from someone who's not in Copenhagen, which is true, who said I've chosen to do a graduate degree because of the undergraduate course that I took with you when I came as an exchange student to often commerce. That's what I mean, right? And that's not praise. That's them saying I took that idea I applied the idea, it opened up my eye to real application, and now I'm pursuing graduate education in that space because of the interactions that we had. Now there's two things here that I tacit that I need to make explicit. One of them is openness to feedback, not praise, feedback.
1: Very and for different, me, with that, yeah.
2: Very different. Right. So for me, I, I don't wait till the end of term, for instance. I ask people these three questions based on this conversation. What might you tweet about today? What's your one big takeaway? In other words. Mm-hmm. Two. What are the positives of this interaction? What things did you just love? And three, what might you change about this interaction? Amazing. And I do that w- with every conversation. I do this with every section, every every iteration. And what that does is it really keeps me current.
0: And I'll attest, you you asked me those questions when we did our pre-call for this podcast. Yeah, and I've never, I will say, I've never had anyone else ever ask me uh, that kind of those kinds of questions or in this kind of, um, conversation. And I, I, love how you build that in to everything you do. And I'm going to tie that back to that, you know, being at our best is not just about the board meetings or the big, you know, funder meetings. It's about every interaction you're having and how are yeah. you showing up, um, serving and, 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 focusing on the people that you're you're there with
2: mm-hmm. now so another advantage of this insistence on feedback Cindy mm-hmm. back to being at our best is that it frees up this mental energy that we engage in which is around guessing
1: mm-hmm. guessing
2: how that interaction went yeah. I hope I was fine I hope my tight collar was okay I hope that I didn't have you know lettuce stuck between my teeth I hope and, and so on so forth yeah. Right. And again, I think that that sometimes comes from the inability that we have to put ourselves out there in a way that's out of our comfort zone. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Excellent. So, we're focusing on impact. Mm-hmm. We are open to feedback. Mm-hmm. What other things do we need to, I don't even want to say do, but how to be yeah. to develop, continually develop? As leaders.
2: So let's make that distinction, right? All of us have on a weekly basis, uh, on a daily basis, sometimes longer, we have a to-do list. Yes?
0: Oh, yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But
2: what about our to-be lists?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Right? Because we are human beings, after all, not human doings. Now, I, I I believe in the importance of goal setting, and I believe in setting objectives, and I believe in meeting them and exceeding them. But I also think that we need to have a to-be list. And in that to-be list, we have to have kind of one golden rule. And then my golden rule is this, that leadership work is people work. Mm-hmm. If you can't love them, you can't lead them. Asterisks. Now, okay. one more time. Leadership work is people work. If you can't love them, you can't lead them. Asterisks. Now, here's the asterisks:
1: mm-hmm.
2: It's not that you have to love everyone that you lead. But in everyone that we lead, there must be something that we love to see grow and to develop. Yeah. Now, that's the lens that I think we need to bring to every single interaction that we have. What what am I going to help grow and develop in the person with whom I have my next interaction? And what that does is, back to my earliest question, now we begin to shape our interactions, not just take our interactions at face value. And that requires, I think, openness to those opportunities. That sounds very basic and, and, and simple, but it requires real mindfulness. So this is the other thing I want to yeah. say to you. Yeah. You know, how do we have to be? So we have to be in a space, right, where we acknowledge that in addition to time, which we, we talk about as being in real binding condition, the other binding condition is space.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: space in our heads and space in our hearts and I try to keep you know I I have a joke that you know I say I don't allow people to live rent-free in my head or my heart like if they're not paying my rent they're not there (laughs) yeah and and so for me what that means is I, I really want to like focus on the interaction have my media off not not be worrying about other things and really mind that for the potential that it has.
0: One of the things I teach people, because there's so much fear around fundraising, and when I teach fundraising to non-fundraisers, mm-hmm. I encourage them to practice something uh, that I learned from Brenda Bouchard, which is release and set intentions. So mm-hmm. when you're moving between interactions, mm-hmm. letting go of what was and setting intentions and being mindful of what you're going into. And I think it's a choice, right? And this is what, you know, how we show up and how we be, we, we have control over that if Mm -hmm. we focus on it and are Mm -hmm. mindful of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I, and I think that is incredibly hard to do, uh, but also really easy to change, but we get so caught up in, carrying with us the weight of past conversations or what we were we were just working on and all the things that it just bogs us down yeah and it, and then it gets harder and harder to shake off
2: right so now now you've said exactly what I wanted to say which is <laughs> this is why we have to know why our why is our why like why that intention matters to me
0: that's like almost like a grounding intention like something we can remind ourselves
2: but but I also want to say to you, yeah. it, it requires for us to be choiceful. What I mean by yes. that is if something, if things are going in a direction that's not linked to our why, we need to course correct in the moment,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? And not take the slippery slope of, well, oh, let's just kind of get along or please the person and so on and so forth.
0: It's hard though. Well, I think people think it's hard, partly because we want to please other people or we don't yeah. want to ruffle feathers. Um, there's lots of reasons we're just taught to be polite, not that we're not impolite if we do these things, but it's just very, I think it's very hard to let go when something's not serving us. How do you, how do we do that?
2: But I think addressing this thing that I call the tyranny of politeness. Yeah. And the tyranny of politeness can only be solved for when the objective function or the definition of success is making undiscussables discussable. I think that we're not having a real conversation unless we can take the elephant in the room and serve it up.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and I, and I think what that requires is the ability to be honest with ourselves and say, hey, there's something happening in this interaction, that I think we're sidestepping something that's really important. I'll give you a small example of that. When we talk about serving in community, mm-hmm. this notion that somehow community is a universal term that we can use without getting the specificity is hugely problematic for me. Mm -hmm. Community requires a recognition of the range of human experiences that call those communities home. And so when we don't actually recognize, acknowledge, and design for inclusion, guess what happens? One size fits no one. Yeah. And so we need to talk about this in the sector, for instance, right? That they are geographic. They are racial, there are needs that are based in identity, there are needs that are based in past trauma that have mm-hmm. to be addressed if we're to be successful in the community.
0: Absolutely.
2: But we use that term so generically as if it's some sort of a, an ad for a new product or service that we're selling, as opposed to really doing the, the grist of the work, which is to define what the challenges are. Because when we're clear about the challenges, that's where our value shines.
0: I see that as almost or a, a bit of a parallel with, um, you know, what we used to call diversity, which is just representation. Mm-hmm. And now what we look at in terms of inclusion and actually looking at, uh, there's that great picture of like people standing on
1: mm-hmm. on
0: the blocks and, yeah. you know, equality is like everyone gets the same block,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: equity is when they have the block that's appropriate to their size. Um, right. And then I've heard justice is when there's no gate that they're looking over. But it's it's really like, you know, you have to look at those deeper things. Like when I started learning about anti-oppression work 15 plus years ago, you know, it was a completely different conversation than it is today because we've had to move towards what are we missing? What, what are we not talking about? And how do we bring those things to light? So... And
2: so think about this, right? So we can either, you know, skirt the issues and pretend they don't exist in these conversations or discussions of impact, or we can get uncomfortable and say, listen, we don't have all the answers, but I think it's important for us, given our commitment to impact, that we address Mm -hmm. this. Maybe not all of it today, but we need to have a strategy to do that. That, to me, is an example of making undiscussables discussable.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Another form of that is composition on boards and committees who's not there whose voice is not centered in conversation whose experiences are not represented And i don't mean that in a very you know paint by numbers way but i mean mm-hmm. that in a real engagement kind of an approach to this work
1: mm-hmm.
2: and to me engagement is to me engagement is a universal aspira- universal aspiration that requires translation around choices What may be engaging to one main fact be a turn off to another. But you have to be declarative about this intent and then ask the question, what does engagement look like for you?
0: And so is it fair to say that we make trade-offs and decisions as we define that more and more and narrow in? Or do we want to broaden out and have broader Um, definition? Okay.
2: Yes and no. I actually think that the fundamental premise is still the same, which is, to me, a leader meets people where they are,
1: mm-hmm. but
2: doesn't leave them where they found them by the time they're done with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's actually this idea of being open to where people are,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? And the next, the next piece is, is the, being discerning about how do we elevate that conversation through that interaction in a way that people are left better off. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you the opposite of this for a second. So I am saying unequivocally that in whatever we do... We must never diminish the humanity of the other, Mm -hmm. even if we vociferously disagree with them on core issues.
0: I mean, we all, I think most people would nod their head at that and be like, of course. But sometimes it's hard when we get caught up in the things, all the things, right? Uh, So I say to them, if
2: you believe in that, if you agree with that, then you should not have, you know, one WhatsApp group for your board and a sub WhatsApp group with some members of the board.
0: Because
2: yeah. clearly, some things are unmentionable to the entire group. Like, why is that? Yeah. Or why do we trash talk each other within the sector when the other person's not in the room? And to me, I just think that that, that, that to me, is a pernicious form of exclusion mm-hmm. that doesn't get called out. And I want to call it out. Because I, I do want to say to you that those are energy drainers.
0: Absolutely. They bring us down, and it makes showing up... So much harder. So is it as simple as reminding ourselves and that mindfulness that you mentioned before, like how do we build this into our habits so that Mm -hmm. we start to show up that way that we stop the behaviors that bring us down and we start to um, embrace or practice the habits that not only lift us up, but lift those around us up.
2: I think It's turning intention into behavior and turning behavior into acts that we do consistently that give us a sense of having moved closer to the why, our why daily. So to me, I always talk about this idea of a good leader, a mindful leader, a thoughtful leader, an impactful leader is one who actually is able to pay attention to their behavioral footprint they don't even notice the footprint unless they get feedback consistently and they should. And and to me again, it's, it's, I know it sounds, this sounds really simple and trite, but I really mean this fish don't know they're wet. I mean, I like most people don't know what their behavioral footprint is because they just think in their own minds, they're like, we're, you know, storming right ahead. We're doing all the right things. We're committed to this sort of stuff without actually asking people what the feedback is in particular people whose opinions may be disconfirming feedback is data, not destiny.
0: Well, that's like a mic drop.
2: <laughs> yeah. Feedback yeah. is data, not destiny. Feedback is just data. It just yes. tells you how others experience you. It doesn't mean that you are a good person, a bad person, a happy person, or a sad person, someone to be despised, someone to be loved. It's just feedback.
0: Yeah. And also, it doesn't mean that we have to continue. Like, so much, I think, is we think people, when we get feedback, we take it personally and we, we see it as ourselves. And then we... Uh-huh reinforce that image of ourselves ah. right it's like I'm I am that person instead of that was a behavior
2: right and and so can we can say that we stepped into this situation with a particular footprint can I choose another one and I use that metaphor all the time if it's rainy and slushy there's no way that I'm gonna wear my nice suede loafers there's mm-hmm. no way Absolutely. I prefer that yeah so just prefer the outcome
0: you want and that data is not, like, we can always change data. We can always by, by, do things differently.
2: Right. By, yeah. by doing things differently. That's
0: right. Numon, I, I love it because it's, it's so much about how we show up and the mindset of, of being leaders. And again, it's not about a position. It's really about, you know, our intentionality of of making empowering decisions to ourselves and those around us I think it's such an important conversation for our sector before we run out of time is there anything you'd like to add to our listeners or say to them
2: I mean I, I'm you know I feel that every leader should read poetry regularly and I think poetry is important because it allows us to use a different part of our psyche or mind or spirit, perhaps. Uh, and I want to close with a piece of poetry that I, that I read, uh, given to me, in fact, by, by um, a friend of mine at a point that I experienced personal loss in my life. Mm. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a Persian poem. It's written by a guy named Hafez. And he says, after all these years, the sun never set to the earth that you owe me. After all these years the sun never said to the earth that you owe me see what happens with selfless love. It illuminates the universe. So I actually think that when you know your why you don't, you don't care for kudos or props. Yeah. You do it because your why brings you value.
0: I love that. And uh, I've had this conversation, a similar conversation with Paul Nazareth, who I know, you know, where we talk about service Mm -hmm. and that you know we approach our work i approach our work personally as a company everything is is about service Mm -hmm. and i i think that's such a beautiful poem to express that so thank you
2: my pleasure it was great talking to you and i hope uh that you will have not only much luck but more importantly much impact
0: thank you and i'm sure all of our listeners can appreciate that and uh thank you so much for joining us
2: My pleasure.
0: Take care. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.